Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used in churches for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on the text used in the lectionary in the coming weeks. Today's passage is 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1-5, to and then the end of verse 12 through verse 19. It happens to be the lectionary reading for the seventh Sunday after the Pentecost, also known as proper number 10, in the year B cycle of the lectionary. This text happens to be one of the readings for July 11, 2021. Now for the sake of this week's episode, I'm going to be looking not at the exact passage from the lectionary, but rather the entirety of 2 Samuel chapter 6, which goes all the way down past verse 23. So Instead of looking at verses 1 to 5 and skipping to verse 12, I want to look at the entire text because I think this entire text can be helpful to us in a number of ways. And I really want to treat three different elements of this text in this week's episode of Passages. And the first piece I want to deal with is the ark itself. The ark is one of the main figures in this story in 2 Samuel chapter 6 about the rise of the Davidic or David's kingdom. The ark has its origin Uh, back in the time of uh, the biblical story of the Exodus, after Moses leads the children of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. They eventually visit Sinai, where Moses receives uh, the uh, commandments, specifically the Ten Commandments on the two tablets. And it's after that time he fashions an ark, and in this ark are going to be placed several things. Now, the word ark is a transliterated word. And what transliterated means is if you take a a word in another language and you spell it in English with English letters, the word ark actually is the Hebrew word ark. And it means box. Now, the Israelites would carry around this box and they eventually built a tabernacle for it as they were instructed to do in uh, the book of Exodus and in Numbers and Deuteronomy. And they built this tabernacle, a tent that would house the box, and only the priests could touch the box. If anyone else touched the box, it would be, well, fatal. So there are stories in the Bible replete about this box, and anyone who touched the box would perish if they touched it. So If you've ever seen the old movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is about the Ark of the Covenant, which this is what we're talking about, it kind of pays homage to this uh, tradition around uh, the fatality of anyone who mistreats the box or the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark contained three items. It had the two tablets that Moses received when he was on Sinai, the Ten Commandments. It contained a jar filled with manna, Manna was the substance that the Israelites ate during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And then it also contained Aaron's rod that budded. Aaron, who would eventually become priest, it had his rod he used for walking that, although looking like a dead stick, actually sprouted buds of life on it. Now, the ark was carried by the Israelites throughout the time after Moses through Joshua, then the period of the judges, and then even into the first uh, king of Israel named Saul. But after two different battles with the Philistines, Saul lost the ark, and the Philistines captured it. And so as the story unfolds in 2 Samuel, David and his rise to the monarchy has two different battles with the Philistines. 
And after his two battles with the Philistines, he's able to retake the Ark. And so what David wants to do is to take this primary artifact, this primary piece of Israel's religious history and its tradition, and he wants to move it from where it's been taken by the Philistines, ultimately to the city of Jerusalem that he just recently captured from the Jebusites. So he wants to take the ark up to Jerusalem and to the city that David is now named after himself, the city of David. That's his destination. And so as they begin moving the ark, there's this rich story about how they begin moving it and the people are dancing and celebrating and giving thanks for the ark, making its ascent up to Jerusalem. And they put the ark on a cart that was pulled by an ox. And 2 Samuel 6, our reading, tells us about this. And as it's being carried on the ark and people are dancing and celebrating in front of it, uh, they uh, get to a point along the journey where the, the ark is disrupted. In other words, the, the cart is shaken and it looks like the ark is going to fall off. Well, one of the attendants who's escorting the ark from behind, his name is Uzzah, he decides to put his hand out to hold the ark so it won't fall off the cart that's being pulled by an ark. Well, the story goes, and this isn't in the lectionary reading, but it's right in the middle of the two parts of this lectionary reading that we don't read in churches, that uh, Uzzah is judged for having touched the ark, and he is, uh, well, smitten dead because he touched it. It's a really interesting story that Uzzah dies because he grabs the ark, and David, having witnessed this, protests protests to God that why would Uzzah be struck dead for just touching the ark? And what it does is it kind of conjures up these images of the ark as a sacred and holy object, which were very true in the early days of its existence that we read about back in the book of Exodus and in Deuteronomy. So when this episode happens, they're not at Jerusalem yet when Uzzah dies. And so everybody decides that the ark is just a bit too dangerous. And so David decides to park it in a place called Obed-Edom. And he leaves it there. And it stayed there for three months. And during the three months the ark was at Obed-Edom, Obed-Edom was blessed beyond measure. The text doesn't tell us how they were blessed, but they were blessed in one form or another. And so David, after three months of the ark sitting there, kind of thinking in some ways it's radioactive. Now he wants that blessing for himself and he wants to bring it up to the city of Jerusalem. And when they bring it to the city of Jerusalem this time, they bring it in a procession that's very, very different than the procession that had led up to the point of Uzzah's death. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But for now, the key passageway here is this, that our posture in the presence of God matters. You see, the ark, it's not a charm. It signified to Israel the very presence of God. And Uzzah, along with others, is dead, along with others over the centuries who, quote, have mishandled the ark. It seems like a cruel story, and in many ways it is a cruel story. But there is a sense in which the story is trying to help us understand something about who we are in relationship to the box, if you will. And for us as Christians today, living in a a different time and a different season, Jesus has become that ark for us. Jesus is the, the word made flesh. So instead of the word being on tablets in a box, the word now inhabits 
the very body of Jesus. And we now, as the body of Christ, we are that box. Our flesh, together as a part of the body of Christ, we function as that box. So as we think about ourselves, who are we in relationship to the sacred presence of the divine in us? And how do we understand and perceive others as being individuals who are part of that divine container, if you will, that we each hold something of God within us? Our posture in the presence of God matters and the recognition that there's something of the image of God in each and every one of us. That matters. Now I want to turn our attention to the second facet of this passage of scripture that I find to be quite interesting, and it's about the worship itself that goes on. And as we've already talked about, this procession begins, and then it stops, and then it begins again. Now let's talk about round one, what happened the first time uh, this procession began as the ark was brought up from the Philistines. It says that it was on a cart pulled by oxen, and there were two attendants. There was an attendant in the front um, that was guiding the animals, pulling the cart, and there was an attendant behind as the ark was making its movement. And as we read the story, they're not making any sacrifices. There are no priests. They're not involved in any kind of, I should say, animal sacrifices. And the posture of round one is like a victory parade. David had just defeated the Philistines in a second decisive battle, And the story smacks of being a parade for David's victory as they bring the captured ark up to the city of Jerusalem. The ark arrives at a place called Nakor, and that's where the cart has the little bump in the road where the ark nearly falls off and Uzzah reaches out to stop it. There's a little, there's a lot of different meanings for what this could be about. But again, as I mentioned a moment ago, the posture of the people is key. So, There's not any kind of sacrifices to the Lord going on. There's not a lot of prayer going on. There's there's this more of a sense of it being a victory parade. And in the victory parade, the ark is carried on a cart, which it's never been carried on a cart before. It's always been carried by people. And so when Uzzah dies, David says, how can the ark come to me in chapter 6, verse 9? And so he stops at Obed-Edom, takes the ark off the cart, and he leaves it there, and it stays there for three months. That's round one. Round one was really more about a victory parade. Round two is very different. When David decides after three months that the ark should come to Jerusalem, he goes down to Obed-Edom, sees how the house of Obed-Edom has been blessed, and decides it's time to bring the ark finally to Jerusalem. But instead of putting the ark on a cart this time, There are four people who are assigned to pick the ark up and hold it on poles. So imagine two horizontal poles on each side of the ark with two people in the front and two people in the back who are carrying the ark as it goes, which is is the way the ark has been transported as we read about in other biblical passages. And what they do here is they stop every six steps, the story tells us, and they make a sacrifice to the Lord. And the sacrifice they make is of a fatling, and ironically, of an ox. Seems like a graphic sequence, but don't lose the meaning of what's going on here. Every six steps, they stop to make a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord. 
And the story tells us that David danced with all of his might before the ark and that the people celebrated. You see, there's a shift here. The shift from round one, which was like a victory parade, into round two is an act of worship, an act of thanksgiving and gratitude to God with the sacrifices being made, prayers and songs being sung, David dancing before the Lord with abandon. There's a sense in this second ascension of the ark that there's a deeper understanding of God's place in it. And that's really the key passageway that we need to hear. That our posture before, in, and with God matters. You see, this part of the episode about what happens with the ark when it stops on the way up to Jerusalem is left out of the lectionary reading. But I think this part of the story matters. How we approach, engage, and live with God matters. You see, we're not in a transaction with God. This is not about what we get from God, which is almost like what the first parade is celebrating. It's not about how good we are, about our victories, about how awesome we are, because to be honest, we think we're all pretty awesome. I heard in seminary, one of my professors, Ralph Martin, say this, that worship is to ascribe God supreme worth. Worship is to ascribe God supreme worth. And it's words I've really never forgotten and what Dr. Martin taught me back in those days in school, that worship is not about us. It is about God. It is about God's greatness, about God's power, about God's majesty. It's also about God's love and grace, God's intimacy, God's closeness. You can really tell the difference between round one and round two of the ascension of the ark to Jerusalem. Round one, it seemed an awful lot about us, but round two That round was all about God. And now we turn our attention to the the third piece of this story that I think is important to highlight. And this part of the story is about the king, and it's specifically about David. We've already spoken about David's victory over the Philistines, about David's procession about the first part of the ark's ascension up to Jerusalem. But the highlight of the story, the part of the story that most people remember and talk about, is during the second ascension into Jerusalem. David, it says, is dancing before the Lord with all of his might. And as he's dancing before the Lord with all of his might, David may have exposed himself. And we'll talk about that in just a second here. But as David dances before the Lord coming into Jerusalem, David's wife, Michael, looks down with disdain on David's unbecoming behavior. Now, this procession in the second part of the Ark's ascension, where it says that David danced before the Lord with all his might, it kind of smacks of an old tradition, a Canaanite dancing ritual. And the Canaanites were the inhabitants of this part of um, this part near Jerusalem before the Israelites came to be in the land. And it's part of the Canaanite dancing ritual that would have been known to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the Jebusites, before David had arrived there. That may be true, but there's a simpler reading of this text that is a little bit more likely, I think. That David worships and celebrates with complete and total reckless abandon. He is enthusiastic and he is unchained in his worship of God. It says in the story that he's wearing a linen ephod. 
And an ephod could take a lot of different forms. It's a difficult word to translate, but imagine it to be a, a, almost a cloth, perhaps, worn around the waist. In other settings, the ephod could even be the entire undergarment that one would wear. It's enough to say that an ephod is probably more closely aligned to underwear, the way we might think about it. And as David is dancing and rejoicing before the Lord, the text tells us that, well, his ephod may have flown upward and, well, he exposed himself to the crowd that had gathered around. And so what David has done is he's discarded all of the notions of the things that are proper and dignified. This is a wild story about David completely giving himself over emotionally, physically, spiritually in the celebration of what God has done. So as his wife, Michael, looks down on this, she's maybe in a building nearby or a structure looking down on the behavior of her husband, David, she's filled with disdain and disappointment knowing that this is not the behavior of a king. You see, Michael is the daughter of David's predecessor, King Saul. She is Saul's daughter. And actually, she's the last member of Saul's household to survive. And she is David's first wife. And she has a very imperial understanding of things. And she rejects David's rejoicing before the Lord, especially when he may have exposed himself. And she says something that's really interesting in the story. It's the most biting piece of sarcasm, perhaps, in all of Scripture. She looks at David when she sees him for the first time after this episode, and she says, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. You see, she thinks she understands how kings should behave, but in reality, she doesn't really understand at all what David is engaged in. And that takes us really to the final key passageway from this text. That great leaders point to the only real leader. You see, Michael wants to point to the past, to her father Saul. She wants to point to convention, normalcy, the way things are supposed to be, civilized behavior. David, instead, he points the way in a different direction. He points to the leader that has anointed him. And as this story closes, even in what we read in the lectionary, there's a bit of a tit for tat between David and Michael as they argue together. And David tells her that I'm the one the Lord anointed to be king over Israel. He, he makes it a point to say that David, that he's doing what he's doing by virtue of God's power and anointing on his life. It's a great juxtaposition at the end of the story between Michael's understanding of his behavior and his own. David is pointing to something bigger than himself. And so the question would sit for us is how is it that great leaders point to the only real leader, that great leaders should point to the Lord Jesus Christ. And all that we do and say as leaders, are we pointing to God? Are are every single one of our lives a signpost that points to God? Are we imposters for God, trying to take the place of God, trying to take credit for all that God has done? Or are we trying to seek an imitation of God in which we give thanks? We're filled with gratitude and generosity because of the God that we follow. I think today, in this moment in which we live, we need to step away from being imposters for God and instead 
instead think about how we can be imitators of God. That's it for this week. I bid all of you grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Passages. Passages.